Our scripture this morning is found in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dana. And thank you, Seth. Uh, for some of you who don't know Seth, uh, he, Seth is at our Shawnee Mission campus, and so it's a joy to have him join us and, and be with us. So thank you, Seth. Uh, well, my name is Reed. It's a, uh, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, I'd love to just pray before we jump into God's Word. So let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to ask that you would bless the teaching of your Word, Lord, that we would hear from you. Lord, that you would remove barriers and obstacles in our, in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, that we might hear from you, receive your word, live in response in accordance with it, uh, that we might reflect your goodness and character in our lives each and every day. May this time be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, last weekend, uh, I had the joy of, of being out with some of our students at our uh, uh, fall retreat. Uh, and so this was, these are all of our students from across all five of our campuses got together. And it was just a real joy. I was out there just for a brief time on Saturday morning. I uh, got to be with them. But it was just a great time just seeing, um, yeah, just the fullness of life. I love that stage of life, middle school, high school. It is a joy. Uh, and it's just, it was just a good reminder of how thankful I am for Jonathan Van Monnen, our, our student ministries pastor, and, and our number of volunteers who love and invest in young people. Dana Dahl, who is up here uh, reading scripture, just so thankful for the way in which the church is the church and loving and caring for our young people. So yeah, just a joy. Um, some of you know my background. I was actually uh, pastor of student ministries at our Leewood campus for about seven years. And so I'm well aware of the, the life of middle school and high school life, uh, not just because I look like a middle schooler, but because I, I spent a lot of time with them. But one thing I know, do you students, one thing I know about middle school and high school life is it's challenging. It is a difficult season of life for, for a number of reasons. And one of which I think it's, it's during the season where we're trying to figure out kind of who we are, we're figuring out our identity and, and what my life is going to be about and, and who my friends are going to be. And, and so there's a lot of challenges. 
And, and what makes matters even more complicated is that it's during this season where we tend to find ourselves kind of shifting even sometimes in our behaviors, our attitudes, even what we believe at times. You know, who I am and, and how I act in algebra class may be very different from who I am and how I act in gym class, you know, or, or how I interact with my friends at church may look very different from how I interact with my friends in dance class or football or, or how I interact online may look very different from how I am at home. And, and that is a challenging thing. There's this inconsistency. And, and I'll level with you, students. The reality is that problem doesn't go away. We, we, like us adults, we struggle with that. We, we, don't, like, we, we might be good at like, hiding it, but we struggle with this kind of consistency, this idea of being who we are at all times and all places, not shifting and adapting to our environments and to our circumstances and to whatever relationship or context we might find ourselves in. This is a struggle that we all wrestle with. And we should ask ourselves the question, why? Like, why is it so hard for us to be consistent, to be the same person in this place and with this person as I am in this place with this person? Why is it so challenging? And maybe even more importantly, what can we do about it? And, and that's what I want us to consider as we jump into our text this morning in Jeremiah 7. Uh, the last few weeks, we, we started a series um, in the life uh, of Jeremiah the prophet, uh, looking at the, the Old Testament book that bears his name, the, the book of Jeremiah. And, and what we've been seeing in this story, we've been identifying with Jeremiah. And what we've seen is that the life that God calls Jeremiah to and the life he calls us to is a life that is really too great for us. It's beyond what we can handle and bear and manage and accomplish on our own. And that's kind of the point. God wants us to be in a place of dependence upon him. But, but what I want to do this morning is kind of shift the perspective a little bit. Rather than identifying with Jeremiah, I want us to see that we actually might have a lot more in common with the people of Judah, who are the people that Jeremiah is speaking towards and against. We might have more in common with them than we realize. And what I want us to see is that perhaps sometimes the burdens and the challenges of life, sometimes they're brought on because of us. Sometimes we create our own problems. We make the challenges and the burdens of life too great. Or to put it more pointedly, and this is what I think Jeremiah is getting at here, is that the task of life often is too great because our scope of worship is too small. I think that the task of life oftentimes in our lives is too great because our scope of worship is too small. And, and I'll, we're going to kind of unpack what that means, but, but just to kind of set the context where we are, so Jeremiah 7 has what is referred to as the great, ser, uh, great Temple Sermon, where Jeremiah is calling out the people of Judah, telling them to amend their ways, to repent, and to turn back to God, because they've essentially kind of shifted and, and adopted all these other false gods in their day. And in kind of the long and short of the message, and if you want to kind of see the context, Jeremiah 26 actually gives a little bit more context of what's going on during the sermon. So it gives a little bit more of uh, the situation, how Judah responds to Jeremiah. They basically want to kill him. Uh, but basically, Jeremiah is giving this message at a time when Judah was in a place of political and social fragility, like just not a good place to, to receive a tough message. And yet Jeremiah is called by God to give this message anyway. And at the heart of Jeremiah's message is, is basically this, that, that Judah had begun to distort and diminish what authentic worship is, what it means to worship God wholly, completely, and consistently. And, and what I want us to look at in this first part is that the, the first part of Jeremiah's message, you could kind of sum up by saying this, that he's basically saying worship cannot be a vaccination. 
Worship cannot be a vaccination. Now, obviously, the word vaccination is not in Jeremiah 7, so don't be looking for it, but it's just a word picture to see what it is that Jeremiah is getting at. And, and what I want us to see, and we don't have like a ton of time to kind of unpack a theology of worship, uh, but what I want us to, to understand is what we mean by worship. You know, it's not just a religious term. It's not a spiritual term. We all worship things, whether we recognize it or not. But when we talk about worship, let me just offer this very just general definition. Worship is this. Worship is a proper response to God in light of who he is and what he has done. Worship is a proper response to God in light of who he is and what he has done. Now, that may sound really simple and maybe overly simplistic, um, because that, that concept we can kind of get. Like, I, I, I can wrap my, my mind around the concept of worship. Uh, but what we struggle with, I think what trips us up, both as religious people and non-religious people, is not the concept of worship, but the context of worship. We, we don't have a real good understanding of, of where we worship and, and what it looks like and what is the scope of it. We get the concept because, I mean, we've all worshipped something. You know I mean? We've, we've all ascribed greatness to something. We've all been in a situation where we feel just lost and mesmerized by the beauty or the awe of something. Maybe it's at a concert or at a football game. We, we've all been in places where we delight in something supremely or where we draw our worth and identity from something. That's really what worship is. So the concept we get, it's the context of worship that we struggle with. We fail to see the scope of worship. And really, this is what Judah failed to grasp, and which is why God sent Jeremiah to proclaim this message of repentance. And we see it very clearly in verses 3 and 4. So look with me in verse 3. This is God speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, now one thing may sound strange, like that, how are those deceptive words? I mean, isn't the temple where they're worshiping, isn't that the temple of the Lord? How is that deceptive? And, and basically what had started to happen in the people of the lives of Judah is that they had started to drift away from what authentic worship was. And they began to kind of hold to this kind of superficial veneer of religiosity, where, where religion, or where worship rather, was expressed in just these small pockets of life. And they had basically eroded worship down to something more like a walk-in clinic where you received a flu shot. The temple was the place you came after a week of kind of ruining your life, you know, a week of, of doing whatever you wanted. You came to the temple to cure yourself of all of your mistakes and failures of the, the week before and to prepare yourself to be cured and healed for all the bad things you would do for the following week. They had basically turned the temple into a CVS walk-in clinic where you got your flu shot and you moved on. And they saw that what they did in the temple had no impact on the rest of their life. They just saw the temple as a place to receive a vaccination. We see that really clearly in verses 8 through 10, where God, through Jeremiah again, says this, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Now, what we see here is there's this clear kind of division that Judah is experiencing in their religious life and in their public life. 
And, and in fact, verse 10, I, I think the ESV, it, it's, it's not the best translation right? because it kind of looks like they're oblivious to what they're doing. They say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. But in fact, the heart of the, the Hebrew, the language that this, this text was written in, communicates something a little bit more strong. And the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, I think has a better rendition. It says this. It says, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts. You see, it's not just like we did these things and, and now we're just going to go do this regardless or, or kind of completely oblivious to how they don't match up, but rather what Judah was doing was saying, because we go to the temple, because we gather here, we are now able to do these things. We are now able to disobey God and live however we want to. They were using the temple and the worship in the temple as their vaccination, as their justification for living their life however they wanted to. They were basically saying, look, we, we show up here on Saturday. It was the Sabbath. That's when they worshiped the temple. We show up here on Saturday. We recite a few prayers. We sing a few songs. We eat some unleavened donut holes or whatever it is, you know, and, and we just go about our day. You know, it's just part of this tradition. And, and really what had happened is that worship went from being this, this aspect that shaped all of their life to this thing that was, wasn't just obligatory. It wasn't just a duty. It became manipulative, they used worship as a way to justify their failures to obey God and love their neighbors well. And God is even more pointed in his rebuke through Jeremiah in verse 11. Notice what he says, has this house, referring to the temple, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So essentially, the people of Judah would commit crimes all week, doing whatever they wanted to, violating God's law, failing to love and care for their neighbor, and then came to the temple and said, we are forgiven, and now that is the reason that I can enter into this week, continuing to live my life however I want. Worship was simply a vaccination to them and nothing more. And if you think about it, this isn't all that dissimilar from the way we think about church today. We tend to think of church in similar ways. Whether you're religious or not, you know, we tend to think that church, this is the place I come, I worship, and then I kind of move on without the rest, through the, the rest of my week. That, it, that it's really just this kind of tradition and it doesn't form and shape every aspect of my life. That I can come here and worship on Sunday even though I've engaged in shady business transactions all week, even though I've, I've turned to things like wine or pornography or Netflix to just kind of escape from the pains of life, even though I, I choose to party on the weekend, do whatever I want, I come here, I sing some songs, I eat some donut holes, I let Reed and Nathan yell at me for a while, and then I can go on the rest of my week. And, and sometimes that's how we view church. We view it as this thing that kind of, kind of atones for, it makes up for our bad week, and then we feel better, then we move on with the rest of our week. But that's not what worship is. That's not what worship is. Worship is not this place where we gather together to cure ourselves from the failings of the previous week. But rather, worship is, is a means by which we come together and gather to calibrate our hearts to prepare us for worship the rest of the week. Let me say that again. We don't gather in worship to cure ourselves from the failings of last week. We come to worship in this place to prepare our hearts, to calibrate our hearts for the worship that we are called to the rest of the week. This is not just a pit stop. This is not just a rest stop in our week. Worship cannot be a vaccination because the scope of worship is far greater than that. But neither can we see worship as a hobby 
as just a facet. So there's one sense in which we abuse worship and use it as a vaccination to make up for our mistakes, trusting in worship rather than God. But there's also a sense in which we just kind of treat worship as a hobby, as a facet. Judah had essentially created this liturgical jurisdiction, if you will, where, where basically God was only relevant and recognized and, and only had bearing and significance in temple worship, and that's it. That was his jurisdiction, and anything beyond that, he didn't really speak to. It wasn't relevant. Rather than being the core of their existence, the center of their lives, God had become a facet, a hobby, a part of their lives that didn't influence and shape the rest of their lives. And because of this, they, Judah had created not, not just a gap, but this, this vast chasm between their private spiritual lives and their public relational behavior and how they lived the rest of the week. Judah essentially had created the problems that they were facing, which again, as I said, sometimes the burdens and the pains and the challenges of life are brought upon us, and sometimes we are the ones that bring it upon ourselves because I believe we tend to limit the scope of worship in our lives. In other words, Judah failed to see how their worship in the temple should involve, should influence and shape the rest of their week together. That it wasn't just a part of their lives or a hobby, but that it should form and shape every aspect of their being. Not, not the least of which is caring for the, the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable. And so what we see in, in the life of Judah is that, is that not only did they fail to love and care for the poor and the weak and the marginalized, they actually went the exact opposite direction and oppressed the poor and they exploited the vulnerable and they took advantage of the marginalized. And we see that in verses five through seven, God's continued uh, message of repentance through Jeremiah. He says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, so it's not just repenting of our own personal sins, the things that we've done wrong, but what we've done collectively. He says, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, which could also be translated immigrant or, or uh, foreigner or alien, if you do not oppress the, the foreigner, the immigrant, the fatherless or the widow, very marginalized, vulnerable people in society, or if you shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, Notice God's mercy even in his message of judgment. You're doing these things and God wants them to stop. Why? Because they're bringing harm upon themselves. God in his mercy is giving a message of judgment because he wants more for his people. And he says, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. So Judah basically had begun to drive this wedge in between their religious beliefs and, and their relational behaviors that were played out the rest of the week. And since the scope of their worship was very narrow and limited to their time in the temple, they found themselves abusing the poor, taking advantage of the marginalized, exploiting the vulnerable. And again, we should pause here and say and admit and recognize perhaps we have more in common with Judah than we realize that perhaps the problem we face today is much like Judah's, is that we tend to compartmentalize our lives. We live in these pockets that I'm this person in this setting, and I act in this way in this relationship, and when I am in this context, I act in this way. We live these compartmental lives, and we don't want it. We, we feel the dissonance, don't we, of, of living these kind of divided, bifurcated, divisive lives. We don't want it, and deep down, 
We want wholeness. We, we want to be consistent. We want to be a person who's true to our word. We want to be a person who is what you see is what you get. But we so often find that we don't live our lives that way. We long for wholeness. We long for consistency. We long for integrity. And, and if you've been around Christ community, we use this word a lot, integrity. And, and oftentimes, it, it, we tend to think of it just as being honest, being a good person. But there's so much more to this concept of integrity that I think Judah is failing to embrace. The word integrity, it comes from the Latin word integer. You know, so when we're talking about math, you know, a whole number, an integer is a whole number. It's not divided. There are no decimals. There's no fractions. It is complete. It is whole. It is integral. And so when we think about the life that we want to live, we want a life of wholeness. We want a life free of fractions and divisions. We want life free of math, basically, because we don't want math in our life. No, but, but in all seriousness, we, we don't want division. We want wholeness. We want consistency. We want to live a complete life. And I feel this dissonance, and I'm sure you do too. You recognize, if you're honest with yourself, and I'll, I'll, I'll just speak for myself, I know if I'm honest with myself, I know that the read you interact with on Sunday morning is not necessarily the same read you would find in my home Sunday night. That, that if you were to see the way in which I parent my children sometimes, you, you, would, you would kind of question my integrity. If you, if, you, if you knew the things that I found funny and the things that I found entertaining and I laughed at, you would question my integrity. If you knew how I spent my money and, and how I spoke about people in the car like while I'm in traffic, like there's a sense in which I feel the dissonance in my life, that I don't live this wholeness that I long for. This is the struggle that Judah faced and failed to see, and it's the struggle that I think you and I face. And I think the reason why we struggle with wholeness The reason we struggle to live this wholeness of life is because we don't know what it means to worship with our whole life. I think the reason we struggle to find wholeness in life is because we don't know what it means to worship with our whole life. We've created these divisions. Worship has become a hobby. And that, I believe, is what has caused the division we find, the lack of wholeness in our life. The worship of God is meant to be a way of life that forms and shapes every aspect of our lives, every fiber of our being, and speaks into and shapes every nook and cranny of our lives all the time. And so if that's true, if we long for this wholeness and we don't have it, if the scope of worship is bigger than just what happens in the temple, then we also have to recognize that worship cannot just be about today. Worship cannot be a vaccination, it cannot be a hobby, but also worship cannot just be about today. You see, God was angry with Judah, not just because they had had presumed upon his kindness and grace by saying, hey, we're in the temple, we're delivered, we're good to go and live our life however we want. That did anger God, but more than that, the reason why God was bringing a message of judgment against Judah is because they had failed to see the scope of worship. Worship had just become this isolated activity that that only had relevance over the minority portion of their life and had nothing to do with the majority portion of their life. What they did the day after the Sabbath and the the day after that and the day after that, there was no relevance or bearing upon the majority of their life. And this, I believe, is what God was speaking out against. And because there was this divide in their life, they had created this chasm where worship didn't influence, worship only had to do with the worship in the temple and the Sabbath. They found themselves living religiously on the Sabbath, but then living like robbers the rest of the week, which again, I think is what led to the oppression of the poor and, and, and the brokenness in their community. 
not only amongst the people of Judah, but amongst their neighboring communities and nations. Because worship was only taking place in the temple, it didn't influence and shape the way in which they loved and cared for and interacted with their neighbors, how they went about their work and how they managed their households, how how they went about the rest of their week. They failed to see the connection. And because of that, it was not hard to justify oppressing the, the poor, taking advantage of the weak. They had isolated worship to the temple and failed to see the scope of worship. They failed to see that the way they lived their lives, the way they performed their jobs, the way they did everything normal in their daily lives was not connected to their worship in the temple. And again, as we consider the plight of Judah, the situation they're in, when we compare it to our own day, I think we find ourselves living in this similar way. That we, that we think of, of God's relevance as only on this time and does nothing to do and it speaks no word into what we do with the rest of our lives. And, and perhaps a question for us to consider, like when we think about the brokenness in our world, when we think about the injustices in our world, the pains and frustrations that people have in their homes and their workplaces and their relationships, is it possible, is it possible that some of the pains, the evils, injustices in our world are connected to the fact that you and I worship our jobs instead of worshiping God through our jobs? Is it possible that we've come to the point where where we don't see our work, whatever we do, whether in the home or outside the home, paid or unpaid, in school, whatever it is, is it possible that we see our work as worship, that we worship our work rather than worshiping God through our work? Do we see that our work, whatever we do, whatever you find yourself doing tomorrow, Do we see that we possess the ability to bless and oppress our neighbor? Are we aware of the way in which we do our job has the capability of making someone's day or breaking someone's day? Are we aware that when we enter into whatever it is that God has for us tomorrow, that we can make someone's life better or worse? Do we see that? I don't think Judah did. And they found themselves in the slippery slope because the scope of worship was so small they found themselves not only failing to love the poor, but they found themselves oppressing the poor. And I think knowing the difference, knowing the difference of is my work blessing or oppressing? Am I making someone's day or breaking someone's day? I think think knowing the difference comes down to our ability to see our work as worship to God by loving our neighbors. There's a great little book called uh, The Monday Connection by William Deal, and and he has these profound words in trying to connect the gaps between Sunday and Monday, so to speak. He says this, referring to Christians, he says, if we cannot find any spiritual meaning in our work, we are condemned to living a certain dual life, not connecting what we do on Sunday morning with what we do the rest of the week. We need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual, And they enable people to touch God in the world, not away from it. Such spirituality will say, your work is your prayer. Or your work is your worship. Not your object of worship, but a means by which we worship and honor the Lord. The reality is you and I don't stop worshiping the moment the benediction ends. But rather, we we leave this place, whether we recognize it or not, we leave this place continuing to worship. The question is, what, is our, what are we worshiping? And are we aware of the fact that we are living as worshipers and wherever God has placed us? We don't stop worshiping when we leave this place. 
our worship continues. And so the question is, will we enter into this week, will we enter into the place where we will be this time tomorrow with that perspective? And, and in that vein, let me, let me just offer a few things for us to consider as, as we together prepare for our week of worship. Again, it doesn't stop here, it continues. So may we consider a few of these questions. The first is this, will we enter Monday morning with a posture of worship? Will we enter Monday morning with a posture of worship? And what I mean by that is not, it's not like you don't have to come in and, and bless your space. I'm, what I'm just saying is that as we prepare our hearts for worship in this space, do we, do we expend the same amount of energy and creativity and thought entering into our place of worship tomorrow? The place where God has placed us for the majority of our life. Do we enter into those times? Do we prepare our hearts? Do we pray for our day, setting apart this time and saying, Lord, you have called this place holy as well. May I live in light of that truth. Will we enter Monday morning with a posture of worship? Second, will we see Sunday as a launching pad instead of a rest stop? Will we see Sunday morning, this gathering space, as a launching pad instead of a rest stop? Yes, we come here to be rejuvenated. We come from different walks of life with burdens and pains, and I don't want to dismiss that. It's important that we come to this place to be refreshed and encouraged. But don't see this space purely as a rest stop. It is a launching pad that we are sent out from to continue worshiping the Lord in the places he has called us. And thirdly, will we think of our work as a way of blessing and oppressing our neighbor? Will we enter into tomorrow with eyes wide open thinking about how is my work and the things that I'm doing and the way in which I do my work, how is it blessing my coworkers? How am I edifying my classmates? How am I loving and investing in my children? Am I doing my job in such a way that is making others do their job better? Or am I that person who is breaking someone's day instead of making their day? Or thinking larger scale, how is my work contributing to the good of others? Or is it possible that what I'm doing and what I'm involved in is creating more harm than good? May we enter into our day tomorrow with an awareness that we possess the capability of blessing and oppressing our neighbor through our work. So yes, I... I believe strongly that this place, this space together on Sunday morning, it forms us and shapes us, absolutely. But I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't also believe that the place you will find yourself tomorrow morning at this time will also form you and shape you. Are we aware of that? Are we living in a recognition that God has called us to worship him in all of life, not just in the minority portions of our life? May God grant us the wisdom to see that. So as we bring this to a close, let, let me simply say this. I think the reason why, the reason why worship is seen in our minds as, as just a vaccination, as just a hobby, and as just a Sunday morning activity, I think the reason we struggle with that is because the object of our worship is very small. I think the scope of worship in our lives is so narrow and limited is because the object of our worship is so small and so limited in our minds and hearts. If we want to embrace this idea that says all of life is worship, that it's not just on Sunday morning, but it's where God has placed me, if we want to embrace that kind of mindset, we need a bigger God who transcends church and is involved in all areas of life. But we also need a bigger gospel that tells us that Jesus came to suffer and die for us, not just for our religious spiritual lives, but for all of life. I mentioned our students who were at the fall retreat this past weekend. The theme of the retreat was do work. 
and it was rooted in Ephesians 2. And it's a verse, if you've been around church, maybe you're familiar with, but what we see in this verse is that what compels us to do good works is the profoundly empowering, compassionate work of God through Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And we read these words from the Apostle Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, oftentimes the t-shirt stops there, but we have to keep reading. What does verse 10 say? That truth, God's grace towards us through Jesus is what compels us to realize we are his workmanship, that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that's not just religious speak. It's referring to the work we do. God has created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we see how great the scope of God's love is towards us through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, we will find that we have a wider scope for what it means to live for him and worship him in every area of life. Because Jesus gave his whole life for us, we are freed, empowered, and liberated to live our whole lives for him, not just on Sunday, but in all of the places that God has called us. And so the question for us as we leave this place, continuing to worship the Lord, is this. Will your worship today prepare and position you for your worship tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in prayer, Lord, asking that you would awaken within us, Lord, a perspective of seeing that you have called us to worship you in all of life. Lord, forgive us for the way in which we have limited your scope of worship. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we fail to see that you have called us to love our neighbors, to care for our classmates, to invest in the lives of our family members, Lord, as a means by which we honor and worship you. Lord, would you give us a, a, a robust imagination for what it means to leave this place continuing to worship you in the places you have called us. And Lord, may we be mindful of as we go about our days, thinking about how are we loving and caring for our neighbor through our work. Lord, would you release us to be your people in the places you've called us for the good of all and the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, if you're, if you're a visitor, we're so glad you're here. We'd love to meet you and get to know you at our welcome table back in the lobby. I uh, hope, hope today was encouraging and challenging for you. Um, but one, one thing we say every, every Sunday is as we leave this place, we leave to be the church gathered to be the church scattered. And I know that sounds cheesy and we say it a lot, but it's so important that we grasp this, that we do not cease worshiping in this time, but we are released to worship the Lord. So, so our benediction, our good word for the road, this is actually a, a prayer of the church that I've kind of adapted and adjusted just to speak to this issue for us as we leave this place to continue worshiping where God has called us. So hear these words. Holy is the setting of each yard and room, lecture hall and kitchen, office, shop, and broom, Holy is the rhythm of our working hours. Make holy then our purpose, energy, and powers. May we work and worship each and every day for the good of all people and the glory of your name. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.